Your happily ever after is waiting for you in the Chrysler Pacifica and Pacifica plug-in hybrid. With available all-wheel drive, Pacifica helps handle adverse conditions like magic. And with the plug-in hybrid, it can help your range anxiety disappear. Make your drive even more enchanted in the Chrysler Pacifica. And watch Disney's Disenchanted, now streaming only on Disney Plus, rated PG. Disney Plus subscription required. Must be 18 plus to subscribe. EPA estimated 520 mile total range with a fully charged battery. Actual mileage may vary. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Meyer. My guest for episode 56 is Frank Portman, a.k.a. Dr. Frank, who has put out music since 1985 under the band name The Mr. T Experience. That band has had about a dozen albums plus two solo releases, and you are right now listening to Danny Partridge from 1986's Everybody's Entitled to Their Own Opinion. That's his first album. We will be discussing Down with the Universe from his most recent album, 2016's King Dork Approximately. Now, career-wise, Frank has actually had much more success as a writer of fiction aimed at teens. With three books, starting with 2006's King Dork, the most recent being the sequel to that, King Dork Approximately, from 2014, this album is sort of a soundtrack to that book. We'll talk about how those two careers, those two streams of creative work, work together. We'll also talk about a song called Big Strange Beautiful Hammer from the Mr. T Experience's Yesterday Rules, 2004. And looking back to More Than Toast from Our Bodies Ourselves, 1993. And we'll conclude by listening to Even Hitler Had a Girlfriend, a single version of that recorded in 2014, attributed to Dr. Frank and the Bye Bye Blackbirds. For more information, please check out frankportman.com. For more information about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you appreciate what we're doing here, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to become a supporter of the show. Well, let us get moving. So I will have played in the introduction a little bit of Danny Partridge, just to have an example from your early work. But we're going to get pretty quickly to the new stuff. So Down With The Universe, the final track from King Dork, approximately 2016. Set it up for the audience before we play it in full, that this is written in conjunction with a book and you know has a particular role in the story. But say something a little more about that. So the conceit of the music as it relates to these books is these are books that are in the voice of a 14-year-old who turns 15 in the course of the books. And he is a songwriter and he writes songs that are referenced in the book. And then the conceit of this album is that these are the songs that he has written that are performed by me and my band. So in the book, Down With The Universe, is a song that he writes Tom Henderson is his name, that comes up sort of obliquely in just a very short passage that relates to a conversation with his mother that doesn't really have anything to do with the song. But when I wrote the song, I tried to make it encompass this character's totally nihilistic and paranoid philosophy of of the world. And it was fun to do that. And I think really, uh, in the end, if you go further in and encapsulating an adolescent sense of nihilism and hatred for his fellow man. I don't know how you would do it. I think it is about as far as I could go in doing that.
I like the idea of writing from the point of view of a 14-year-old. I know the stuff that I was writing when I was 14 had much worse lyrics. Yes. <laughs> Girl from the bayou, I really want you, and I still love you, so why don't you need me? That was my second song, I believe. Is that a real, is that a real example? <laughs> I didn't actually know what the bayou was. I thought it was in Africa, but it sounded cool. Yeah, <laughs> the African Bayou. Yeah, <laughs> this is an interesting thing that often in various forms comes up when you're writing songs or doing fiction or doing any kind of art where you're trying to put across a character's experience or to sort of crystallize the essence of some kind of experience is the actual version of someone going through say, the breakup of a love affair is not organized enough to make a compelling song. So right there, you're not doing it very honestly. It's not an accurate portrayal, like you're a method actor and you are living the pain that you're portraying. You have to shape it in a certain way that is nothing like what the actual person would be saying who was going through it. And that's certainly the case when you're, quote, channeling a teenager, because as you say, I mean, I wrote songs when I was 14. And I think the one thing that you could say about them is that they were far too long. I would have, you know, the sort of I didn't have any friends and I would just scribble in notebooks instead. And I would have these song lyrics that would be like 10 pages long and they didn't rhyme and they weren't really about anything. So all these things need to be corrected when you come up with a good version and they didn't really express anything that is able to be communicated beyond maybe a little bit of some antisocial spirit. So when this other figure from the future, which it does, I don't know about you, but when I think of myself as younger and that goes even back up three or four years, it almost seems like it's a different person. I go back and try to wrestle with that material and what I come up with is far different, but it's the only way you can do it because there's no point in recording 12 songs like that, that nobody's going to be able to grasp or Sit get through. anything out of. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. Uh, but those lessons are hard to learn and there is no, you can put yourself through songwriting school by listening to good songwriters and trying to emulate them. I think it was, you know, decades before I figured out what was going wrong with my songs and where I figured out that I could try to correct things that I was finding wrong with everybody else's songs. And uh, it just never occurred to me to think of it that way, which I wish I had done that sooner. I wish I'd had adult supervision. I wish I'd had the kind of an older mentor that would say, no, you can't do that. You can't put that out. Don't put that out. Wait like four years and no one will care that you didn't do those last three albums. Make them all be good. And yeah, it's, it was a hard lesson to learn. So it sounds like you're channeling The Who here. It's your favorite band. I heard a different interview that said The Who is at least the band you would most like to see live or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have seen The Who live. I love The Who, yes. I mean, they were a very a force of nature. And the songs are very interesting and very honest. And I think that's in the end what really gets me about songs when they expose something that feels like there's something real there. I would say, you know, the other guy that has had that effect from when I was a kid and hearing it that continues now, like Pete Townsend is one of them. But Dan Treacy of the television personalities is another one where all the production and the circumstances and all their whatever hotel rooms they trash or whatever flat he lived in in London just all kind of dissipates in, in the face of this voice that's so honest that you get drawn into their world 
Well, in part of the honesty, I mean, sometimes honesty is interpreted as, you know, you can't even sing. You got to just be poetry or something that that's that level, Bob Dylan-esque honesty. But so I'm about halfway into the King Dork book. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I got the picture of the, the autobiographical part is what it is to be young and putting a band together and talking, you know, getting really into your musical influences because that's a main connection you have to culture, to the interesting world out there. The only connection. When you are a socially unsuccessful, alienated teenager, I'm at least, I, mean, I don't know, it's probably not like that now. We're in the post-rock world, but for most of us, and for certainly for me, that was the only thing, you know, that is, you know, I would pay attention to these rock bands and fantasize about being not really being one of them. I would fantasize about what I ended up doing, which was a sort of a fake parallel, very low rent version of what the real guys were doing. But I used to, it's funny that you fantasize about the fantasy, but that is really what it was. When you don't have any other cultural, social, or creative outlets, rock and roll is a really good one to have because you can experience it all alone in your headphones and that is depicted in these books for sure. I hesitate to say it's autobiographical because it, I mean, to maybe sound a little pretentious, aims for more than that. Well, just about the musical influences. So the, yeah. the reason I brought it up was, of course, people idolize punk, idolize the Who, the Clash, the Ramones as being this, this cool thing. But you've got the character, at least, also really latching on to bubblegum, which is something I hear I think it's essential to the who part of what makes mm-hmm. why they're not Zeppelin. Zeppelin doesn't have any of this. So this verse here, you know, very much could be a Partridge family sort of thing, which that, I mean, that's part of like maybe what you're watching on TV. I, hell, I watched Donnie and Marie, you know, at that time, but you know, at the time that's not cool, but yet <laughs> melodically it's an honesty to acknowledge that that really is part of the DNA. That's absolutely true. And you don't get any better than Chewy Chewy, for instance. And I think Tom Henderson in the book says, you know, try to write a song better than that. You will not be able to, you can't. And then for Tom, I would say this is something I share with him, championing things like Yummy, Yummy, Yummy and the, and the Partridge Family, something I did, you know, all the way back when it was part of deliberately, almost like a fuck you to the rest of the world that thinks it's too important for this basically goods. And then when you get older, when I got older and started collecting records and really sort of exploring all of the Kassnitz Cats stuff and just realizing how amazing and strange and off the wall and interesting it was, then that's a whole other level. But then you would get into the conflicts with the other collector type music nerds who still it's beneath them. And then you kind of have the thing where you will organize your own persona in opposition to them by championing the thing that you think is the most hated, which is definitely that's something like a universal impulse. Although you really have to be a, I think it takes a certain sort of person in a certain sort of situation of alienation where you develop that to the degree that certainly that Tom Henderson does, but that a lot of people like me wound up doing as well. Hey, my main collaborator in my college band, who is a big you know, Zeppelin, different kinds of rock thing, just released an all Bee Gees covers album. So there are ways of exploring these things that are deep in your past that are not cool, maybe, or, you know, according to some standard. I feel like things have gotten dissolute enough that there's not even a consensus in what is not cool anymore, even among record collector circles or whatever. <laughs> so. 
That's true. The other funny thing is that uh, a guy like Tom Henderson and a guy like me in searching for obscurities with which to define your opposition to the crowd often kind of hilariously hit on things that are not obscurities at all. Like when I was in high school, I was probably the only person who knew about the clash in my weird peninsula, San Francisco Bay Area Peninsula High School. But at the same time, they were the top rock band in the country. So which I could dwell with both of those realities at the same time. And I think that's kind of funny. If you are, uh, you know, there's, there's this, this band, I don't know if you ever heard of them. The Clash, you know, the Ramones, maybe you didn't hear of them. Maybe they're a little bit too out there for you. You know, the one band every single person has heard of. This is this is part of the alienation odyssey as expressed in the context of rock and roll culture that it's never not funny to me. So we've got an interesting structure to this song, partially just because it doesn't repeat that much. It seems like you get to the chorus a couple times. But the thing that's actually sort of the repetitive, the chorus, the down with the universe, doesn't happen till like, it's pretty much the outro. So before that, you've got the I hate reality, I hate normality. I mean, that you don't repeat the same lyrics. So it's not really a chorus in that sense. And in fact, it has the gestures as if this is the bridge. Like everything drops out. Now we're doing the, we're doing the big power chord thing. And then when that happens later, you know, where you're playing through it, it loses that bridge character. But that's kind of the closest to a chorus that you have, unless you're counting the fast part, you know, when you return to the intro rhythm, da 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 So you just really got sections A through D, but they kind of defy, yeah, okay, this is, I guess, the verse, the thing you start with. But other than that, as you say, it does sound like you're the kind of writer that doesn't start, this is my hook, necessarily, but that you've got pages of stuff, <laughs> The pages of stuff now happen in my head before I actually put them down on a page, (laughs) thankfully. So that's a little less work. But I really love a good, succinct bridge. But almost as much I love, as you have described, basically a whole collection of pre-choruses that seem like a bridge until the song's over. And I used to get into, I wouldn't say arguments, but sort of critical discussions with the guy that I used to record with, Kevin Army, who used to produce all our records, who knew a lot about songwriting. And he would try to identify what's supposed to be going on here. And I always was very clear about it. Okay, This is the verse. This is the B verse. This is the pre-C verse. This is the pre-bridge. This is the bridge. This is the pre-chorus. But the winner of those arguments was always... Are you telling me this song doesn't work? And he's saying, no, of course it works. I mean, I didn't always succeed. I tried very hard to make them work. But the climax of the song is death to the universe. Leads up to that, and then it kind of cascades and disintegrates from that. But it's that one figure, da, 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 da. It's all based around that. I think that's enough. I think that's enough repetition. And then it's sort of reiterated with the different lyrics and in the different forms. And then there's the one where it's just sung without words against slightly different chords. Structurally, it doesn't get out of control, but it does do lots of things in the process of not quite going out of control. Yeah, when you do release the repetitive down with the universe, it's not even you singing it. It's like part of the backing vocals. (laughs) It's the little choir jumping out and doing that. That the fact that then that gives you a stage that you can come on and do your little improv thing to extend the end out a little bit. Yeah. So these things we're talking about is kind of to make that come together, that way of writing a song work it requires some effort and some trial and error and you know figuring things out. I think it does work because that's one of the things that I got good at after 
decades of not being good at it. But there are examples of that same thing. In this case, it's a seeming lack of structure that actually is a structure that's deliberate. But in the past, it was just sloppily all over the place. So I hopefully learned from those experiences. But then the interesting subcurrent of that observation that I've only recently just kind of realized is that sometimes that kind of ineptitude at expression is part of what makes a song compelling, although it can have such flaws that people don't grasp it. But you can contrive to use that kind of sense of confusion deliberately. And that's the thing that's probably the biggest challenge of songs that I try to write with the teenage voice is to capture a sense of confusion and not really being in in charge of your world with being very, very in charge of the poetics of it, which is when you think about it is way more challenging than you have to think about it to be able to do it. Yeah. Thematically, already in the amount of the book that I've read, the character is fantasized about this. I will get a girlfriend and it'll be you and me against the world. Is this still at the point of the books that this relates to a fantasy or is there actually, is he actually writing about two people who are mutually being bullied by this, <laughs> this setup? Or is it really still him just kind of a wishful extension? It is, although there are girls in the books that he doesn't understand very well, which is pretty classic. And I think it's equal parts although this might be a bit contradictory, it's equal parts fantasy projection and engagement with reality, at least as insofar as it's possible for a guy like that to engage with reality. So he sees a victim of the evil of social organization in just about every sympathetic person who's not one of the perpetrators. And this is how he sees the entire world, including in a imagined future where he's running from the triffids hand in hand with a girl or whatever is, you know, and this is a theme that is in a lot of his songs. And it's very much realized in the books. And frankly, it's in a lot of my songs as well, which I mean, they're all my songs, I guess. But this is one, one of the I don't know how much you know about the timeline of my musical versus literary career. But I realized after I had written the first book and was well on the way to the other one that I had sort of been going through a trial run with this particular teen voice through all of this particular sort of song that I'd written all through the 90s, which was not all of my songs, but sort of a core collection of them and some of the most popular ones for whatever reason, were essentially in the voice of this kind of guy, which is not as weird as you think, given that you know rock and roll is teenage music, almost by definition, you stray from girls in cars and you're strained from rock and roll. The further you get from that, the further you get from rock and roll. If you're trying to be a singer songwriter in the context of rock and roll music, the way you can retain the rock and roll is adolescent angst. I think that's a firmly established tradition. So I was doing that here and there. And a lot of it involves this idealization of some imagined girlfriend who has a sensibility and a temperament and has had experiences where she will be an ally. In actual life, you can find allies of that kind, but it's actually kind of challenging. 
in the real world. And it certainly is an obsession for many young men. Nobody understands me. I just want to find the girlfriend who will understand me. As sad as that is, I think that's something like a universal aspiration. Well, especially if the rage is generalized in this way, it's I hate normality. It's not just the picture of high school that you present is not just there are sort of freaks and geeks, you know, the bullies that pick on the geeks, but then there are a bunch of normals that are sort of outside or neutral that it's normals are the malevolent ones. That is the whole key. It's almost Gnostic. It's like the universe is evil. The whole structure of reality is evil. Yeah. You don't think of the the teachers are somehow allied with the normals, the bullies, but no, they're kind of all in league. (laughs) And so because that's such an irrational position in the first place to have another person objectively verify that, like, well, (laughs) I mean, I suppose if they have the same complex. In the second book, the girl that he finally does manage to communicate with as a real human being is very much a candidate for that. But she hates and rejects all that stuff completely and actually doesn't even get it. So I don't want to say it's a tragedy because it's just it's a comic tragedy. But that is a flaw in that worldview, for sure. He has these unrealistic parameters that he's aspiring towards with the idea that they're perfectly sensible and moral. And he is the only one among the world of iniquity. And then, in fact, in the real situation, it's still not comprehensible to even someone very much like him in the world. Let's make the transition to the second song, which is another kind of fatalism, but maybe not all bad, certainly a much more mature take. This is Big Strange Beautiful Hammer. The version that we'll play is from the Mr. T Experience's Yesterday Rules 2004. You had released a very similar version on the Dr. Frank solo album, Eight Little Songs 2003. In fact, is it just like a remix of the same tracks or? It's the same. I think the actual bass player played the bass on the recording. And that was one of my demos that I did. A lot of the songs on that Eight Little Songs were, I mean, they were all songs I recorded in my bedroom. And the reason for doing it was I made a CDR of it because I was doing a little tour as a solo artist because I didn't have a band anymore. So I was just, well, this might be the only way I ever get to record my songs. Not, I'm not sure if I have a band. I'm not sure if I have a label. Lookout Records was starting to dwindle. Although at the time, I didn't realize the degree to which it's possible to dwindle because the music industry hadn't completely collapsed at the time. I recorded that and then we took a lot of those tracks and used them. Most of the songs and so, and much of the tracks that I recorded were kind of used and played along with with the band when we finally got around to recording what at the time was to be our last album for 12 years. So say a little about the song in particular before folks hear it. That song is a pretty good example of an attempt to square the circle, so to speak, that I was talking about before, which is it's very carefully, tightly written, but it's meant to preserve ambiguity about I have pointedly refused to answer all the questions of what it's about, even to myself. It's basically about the experience of transcendent things, but it's like to join that kind of ambiguity with very tightly and carefully careful composition is something that I think is very interesting to do. And it's something I 
increasingly as I learned about songwriting and learned about what I wanted to make my songs do. It's something that I've been trying to hit at. And it's a very strange song, but I think it kind of achieved what it was supposed to do. God, sex, art. That's kind of the three things it could be about. is a must rising from the dust on your feet but just a bit unsteady you want to close your eyes be taken by surprise but not before you're absolutely ready so lay low it's time to commit and you'll know that when it hits it's gonna sound like a big it's coming down like a big It's gonna pound like a big, strange, beautiful hammer You're feeling like a saint, powerful but faint Like you wanna call for an attendant Heavy in your hand, courage on demand You feel safe and strangely independent Once baptized in pain and lie to hold on tight when you collide with the big You go inside with a big Filled inside with a big Strange, beautiful hammer It's coming down on you It's gonna drive you home Yes it is is a waste now you've had a taste you see yourself as well maintained and polished existence is a test we try to do our best but we're on a quest to be demolished it's your right so don't be shy day and night this mythical The big, strange, beautiful hammer. Right, so we don't want to take this line by line, but let's just kind of talk about the narrative voice that's going on here. I know when I write a song like this, that's kind of vague. It's really kind of describing my own experience and my own 
attempt to keep some stability. Like you wouldn't know this about another person enough to say <laughs> you feel all that, you know, of course it's about yourself in some way. And then you don't maybe know exactly what you feel. So it's kind of this stability. You're feeling confident and you're, but then this, so there has to be though some notion of the big, strange, beautiful hammer is just to me, it just sounds like a sense of fatalism that's not necessarily bad. But it's just not tainting, but it's an element of the overall way that you're getting by at that moment. Well, it's surrendering to irrationality. And it's not bad, but it's a thing beyond your control, basically. And this is how, you know, a whole lot of human experience is fundamentally irrational. And that's why you have tradition of art and novels, et cetera, et cetera, trying to work out what it means when people have these sensations or these emotions. And a lot of my songs, like a lot of other people's songs are addressed to a person. You are doing this, like this describes you and here's what you should do. And almost always in my case, though, not always, but you know, a lot of times in my case, and I think for many writers, what you're really doing is looking in the mirror when you're saying it. And that is also kind of interesting because even when you're addressing it to another person, maybe you're doing that a little bit as well. Yeah, the how, how do you sleep? How do you sleep at night? The John Lennon song that was kind of in the newspapers as he's ripping on Paul McCartney and he's like, no, no, I mean, maybe that was part of it. But like once you start writing, then it just becomes its own thing. And of course, you're criticizing yourself, you're whatever, unless you're going to mail it to someone and say, this is for you. And then it becomes kind of pedestrian and utilitarian. When you get to that level of specificity, you're strangling it in a way. You got to be two people. When you create, you know, a song or a novel or I suppose any kind of art, you've got to be the vessel where the weird, inexplicable thing happens, where the, the flash happens, the spark, you know, like the, the metaphor that they say, you know, you have to catch the lightning. You have the, the person that the lightning strikes. And then you have the other one, which is when you're writing a novel, I guess you think of it as the editor where you go in and clean up and make it presentable, this thing. But, you know, you don't want to, the spark's the most important thing. That's the hardest thing to have. And then the other part that I haven't seen discussed so much, but which is certainly true when you're writing songs, is that you are those two people at the same time quite often. So you're kind of fighting with yourself. You can make a decision to leave something in that is embarrassing or personally doesn't put you in the best light or is a little off kilter, you know, because it preserves something that you might otherwise edit out. And then sometimes those decisions can mean the difference between something that's going to, it's going to be alive enough to work. And sometimes you can strangle it and kill it. It's not the sort of thing where you get it perfectly. There's a right way that you get it perfectly right every time. There's just always a, a trade-off that you're that you're doing. And one result of that is that you're not as in control of your writing as you might think you are. And as most people from the outside certainly assume, which is what, you know, he said, well, what did you mean to do here? And I was, like, I, I, I was just following the thing. And that's not a satisfying answer if you're trying to figure out what's going on, but it's actually what what it often is. And it's even in the case with something where less immediate in effect than a song like a novel where you spend four or five years writing it and massaging it and then it gets edited by a million people. And there's still the goal of this is preserving some spark that justifies its existence and then presenting it in a way that can, can be communicated to other people. When you realize what a 
crazy thing it is to try to do that. I feel relieved at the songs that I've had that have managed to work because so much can go wrong in that process, although it's necessary. Now, is the thing that would lead the sort of stream of consciousness in producing the lyrics that you've already got the riff and the melody and the vocal tone, and so it's just what phrases are sounding good or coming to you in that, or was this another on a notebook first? One of the things that happened when I started to get better at songwriting is that the notebook version of writing songs basically stopped happening. And part of that was I just learned to hold back enough till I was sure that what I was doing was real and was was worth it. And by that time, the melodies and the spirit of it and the words like are already melded together. And so the thing doesn't happen with me anymore, although it could well have happened in the past. And that with a lot of really great songwriters like Elvis Costello, for instance, he's got all these examples of where he, you know, takes lyrics from one song and just plugs them into another one and, you know, mixes them all up. I couldn't do that. Once Big Strange Beautiful Hammer, the phrase existed, it was already inextricably married to the notes. And I never wrote anything down till it already happened. And I could not, not that it would even be desirable to do, but say there was this really compelling commercial reason to set that phrase to another tune. I don't know what that would be, but they would just, I would not, I could not do it. But part of that is I used to just sit there scribbling, 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 scribbling with no filter. And when I started to take it more seriously, I gravitated, I sort of edged towards more of a carefully considering things before manifesting them in in reality. That might have gone along with stuff I learned while I was writing the novel too, which is you can actually damage your novel by typing too much, which is I don't think you should, um, because undoing the damage you do with developing a novel in the wrong way is really, really time consuming and challenging. So, which is why this is a terribly inefficient way to write a novel. And I don't give this advice to anyone other than it's the only way that I've been able to do it, which is if you're not feeling it, don't do it. Like some people say, oh, you have to write for sit down every day and do your hour. And then maybe at the end, you'll have some. If you have six months of terrible typing, that sentences you to years of deconstruction. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed with recording, but the sounds that get on that go on tape or whatever, seem to relate to that too. I mean, when there's something really great about this, when everything comes together in a flash and you get it and then you instantly record it, that's like the best you're going to do. You capture something. And then as opposed to how it usually is, for most people, I suspect, and for me, almost always, you know, you spend years tinkering at something and then you finally have a chance to record it. That can come out great as well. But there's something special about the immediacy. And I guess I have a feeling that, or I've had experience that, that if I, I shy away from articulating them irrevocably, prematurely, because I want the first time it, I actually unleash it on my only audience being me and my cat, and maybe my girlfriend, I want it to be worthy of existence. It's a kind of a weird way to look at it, I guess. But I do write better songs that way because I write fewer. So yeah, it says something, the fact that you had the chance, you're going through this activity of, I have the demo down, it's already its own thing, it's out there in the world already, now I'm going to release another version. 
even the Rolling Stones doing this song would have put up piano in verse three or something. Would have thickened it. Like every verse gets a little brighter, but really subtle. It's just like now we'll add a little bit of snare. Whereas if we've just been hi-hatting before, it doesn't ever open up into this realm of uh, synthy beauty or something, which it could very easily do. No, and I, I had this idea that it could be done as a lazy rock band, you know, kind of playing like the birds or something. But when it came down to it, it was just fine like it was. I wouldn't want to do anything more to it. I'd always want to sing it better. But and that's another thing that you that took me a long time to learn that stopping short of gilding the lily. It's just sometimes things are just okay how they are. But being a self-deprecating person, not just outwardly, but inwardly, my inclination is to overdo everything to try to distract from the central deficiency, which that's another, I, that's a thing I learned to suppress, although, you know, not all the time. Sometimes excess is great, but I guess you have to Judge it on a case-by-case basis. I hear very little excess in your back catalog. I mean, you went through a whole period of you even being the only guitarist, and there's just not even a riff in the whole song. It's just chords and singing and then one harmony vocal and that's the melody and it's over in a, like the time a Ramon song would be and that's what you get. And it works great, but there's no gilding. The funny thing there is that when I say that for most of the recordings that I've done, we are talking about being limited by tiny, tiny budgets. Like we would have $400 to record an album on. And still I would have all these sort of grandiose ideas that were like by definition impossible to realize. I guess maybe in comparison to Queen or something, you'd have to hunt further to find the excesses. But in the context of a $30 per song album downscaled, it's there. But the thing is, the decision to do minimalism, which is the heart of punk rock, really, it comes from both comes from an aesthetic idea that minimalism is cool. And we're getting rid of all the extraneous stuff. I don't want to be stepping on pedals anymore. I don't want to do any overdubs. I just want to make this is the song, take it or leave it. But then it's also imposed on you. One of the reasons why punk rock, when it was originally recorded, when the first punk bands in the UK started recording, why the feature of it was the loud guitars, which is that nobody knew how to play the drums in any of these bands. So they were trying to cover up the ineptitude of the drummer. The Damned was a very good example of that, but lots of examples of it. Whereas in a previous era of young punks recording music, they just hire a session guy to be the drummer, which is many of the most famous classic songs of the 60s by groups were done that way. But what I'm getting at is part of it is an aesthetic choice. And then part of it is imposed on you by circumstances like the drummer who can't play, or the fact that you have a very low budget. And then sometimes it gets to the point where it becomes enough of a style that you can't tell the difference between those two things. For in my case, when we did our most minimalistic recordings were the ones that for a variety of reasons became the most popular ones. There was a lot of resistance on the part of fans, so to, such as they were and the band and the label and everybody who'd ever had any reason to pay attention to what we we're doing to when I started trying to stop doing that for a little bit, that happens a lot as well. But, you know, I mean, I don't know how many songs that sound like that you can record before you start to think I want to do songs that sound like something else. 
But that's another feature of the career was I always felt like every time we were recording a record, I wanted to do something that was different from the other thing and requiring smashing apart the previous version to the degree that I could. And in that case, it was a it was a machine that was very hard to kill because it was so effective in terms of, you know, people liked it. It sold copies and it was relatively easy to uh, execute. So the fact that you have this, again, kind of an outro chorus thing here, this hammer, hammer, big, strange hammer, that almost sounds like the Grateful Dead, which I only say because of how much shit you give them in, in your book here, but that this would outrage your, your former fans. Your No, it absolutely <laughs> does. And I remember doing it. I said, I played it for this one friend of mine who's been known, sort of followed me through all of this stuff I've been doing. And I said, oh, so I'm, I turned into a hippie. That was one. Yesterday Rules was a better title, but I thought I turned into a hippie would be a pretty funny title. A certain version of Dr. Frank might have taken that gag and wanted to let's overdub some harpsichords, celeste. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of trying to emphasize whatever dead-like quality it had. Do some arpeggiation on, on the on electric guitar and everything, but sometimes you got to hold yourself in check. And, you know, when you make pastiche is a great thing in rock recordings and you'd never want to let go of it, but you can distract from the song by making it too much of a referential gag. I mean, my generation is very much guilty of that. The Beach Boys are great, so I'm going to put ironic Beach Boys vocals over every single thing I do. Ha, how do you like that? And then all anybody hears is, oh, it's another person with the ironic Beach Boys vocal. So you can shoot yourself in the foot that way. Well, yeah. And I like you know, at the end of this, you've got the space that should be taken up by a guitar solo, but it's really just the same two acoustics changing up the arpeggiation a little bit to make it reach higher in the neck and and just, you know, that it sounds like it deserves to be there and it has some growth, but it's not the same as... Now the lead guitar steps in, which would be very easy in the song to just bring in, you know, a Ron Wood sort of player to, to do a, a lead line to take you home here. It would be entirely in character with what's been happening. I could see all sorts of things that I could still at the time I, sh I did. And I had to do so little because I had an ambition for it. I did it as a demo. I brought it in. I said, let's record this and let's figure out what to do. And the moment of kind of being disappointed that I didn't get a chance to show off more or whatever, but it was the right decision to make. In many of those cases, it is. But it is another thing that's not as easy for me to come to grips with as it should be after all this experience of it ha going this way. But, you know, a little goes a long way and you can get more out of the bare suggestion of something than hammering it into the ground, which is definitely when you're recording or arranging and especially songs that really are pounded into the ground. I mean, the, one of the things that my songs tend to do is to take a simple conceit and then just like way overdo, you know, just beat the dead horse beyond recognition. Something's got to breathe somewhere. And in that case, we would start bringing in string sections and everything. It would not have helped that song be better. Well, let's turn to one of the more authentically minimalist, you know, from your classic period, More Than Toast, from Our Bodies, Ourselves, 1993. You still did have two guitars at this point, so it's not the ultra-minimalist thing that I was referring to, right? So the, the second guitar player quit. Okay, so you're just overdubbed a few times here. There's still a lead line, is what I'm saying. Our more successful trio lineup came subsequent to that. This was where the other guy departed. We had a disastrous 
very strenuous, very difficult attempt at touring Europe in the summer of 92. And often for many bands and my band, certainly, you know, well, being in a band at all is a thankless job. Touring is a thankless job. Touring Europe in those days was a really thankless job. And uh, usually bands break up after the tour. That's sort of they disintegrate through the whole thing. And then by the end, there's nothing left. Well, the result of that was this guy left. And so then we continued on as a three piece. And then the subsequent trio was with two different guys. But More Than Toast kind of marks and the album Our Bodies Ourselves, the More Than Toast preceded it as a single, marks the point where I was finally trying to come to grips with writing better songs and sort of realizing the wasted opportunities of all the half-written songs that I'd recorded for the previous six, seven years. It's not a perfect song. I could have made the lyrics better, but as far as the thing of, of capturing a mood and a feeling, it totally works. It worked from the beat from the the second we recorded it. And it is probably the most popular of all the songs that I've ever recorded. I don't know how you would prove that, but I have the sense that it's the most popular one.
It's not quite as Ramonesy as your really early stuff, but that's a whole three minutes. It's not two minutes. It's a lot of one, four, five in, but it's got a few little twists and turns. It's not the, uh, we're going to play the simplest possible thing. So this definitely seems kind of a transitional song. Am I thinking of the really early stuff correctly as, you know, almost, I don't want to say Ramones cult because it's not like you were trying to copy that exactly, but, you know, a very specific punk ethic that then sort of got more, I don't know if more poppy is the way, but allowed itself to expand it melodically a little bit after that. The general spirit of what you said is hard to argue with. Um, I'm not sure. I think the if the previous era of Mr. T experience stuff comes off as more, as you say, Ramones cult, which I think is a perfectly valid category. And certainly, you know, the Ramones have been a big factor in my, but not as much as and not anywhere near as much as some others. I think a more accurate way to describe it is that, uh, you know, I, I always had these all ridiculously grandiose pop ambitions all the way to the beginning. But what was missing was money to record them and personnel who could play them. And then that's blaming it on others. But the thing that I can blame myself on is I didn't put enough work into the composition. And so I think the result ended up being always a lot less than what it was imagined and what it might have been, although it could have been worse. In fact, probably would have been if I think of myself at, you know, 24 years old, if I had the ability to do my ideas without hindrance, it probably would have been horrible. But the main thing I blame that on, there was every incentive, there was a strong disincentive not to take the writing seriously, because it didn't matter whether you put in very much effort. The content in the what you were doing when you were playing in a band in my context, you know, the mid to late 80s, very underbelly of show business, the sub, sub, sub level of show business, it mattered not at all whether your lyrics were good. No one can hear them on the stage and probably not even in the recordings the way you were mixing them. (laughs) Yeah, no one could hear them. No one would recognize whether they were good. It was not part of it at all. And you could get away with anything at all. And even when I would be in the position where I think I should try to write a good song that I, the requirements of this world was satisfied with very little, even in that case, and almost anything you did that was sort of coherent at all, put you significantly ahead of the rest of the people that weren't similarly weren't trying at all. It was, there was a low standard for these bands that no one was paying attention to and that we'd play a show that two people would come to and that would be a good night. That's the level of how much it mattered. And so there wasn't anything that changed in 1992 other than I was starting to think about what I was going to do with my life a little more seriously. Was I going to go to graduate school and do what I'd always imagined I would do is have an academic career? And if not, because I didn't really want to do that, was what I was doing, was it worth it? And that's when I started thinking that I should try harder. I remember it very clearly thinking, yes, I'm going to try harder and then actually trying harder and realized how much effort you had to put into trying harder to make it make a difference. And then in the past, 
when I've been in situations like that, I just, it's when things are too much effort, I just let them drop. But for some reason at this particular juncture, and I think a lot of it had to do with, I got a new guitar. And so I spent a lot of time, it was a new old guitar. I spent a lot of time playing with it. And a lot of the songs that were kind of leaps from the previous ones were including more than toast and the songs that were on our bodies ourselves, which uh, while not perfect and while still containing a lot of this laziness that I'm talking about still were uh, an attempt to harness the horses a little more just had to do with the novelty of a different guitar. Sometimes that happens. You get gear and it takes you somewhere. I'll say that is the album I spun the most in prepping for this. I went through all of them in order on Spotify, but that one I think I spun like three times. It's weird to me how, because I don't think its potential is is realized, but I might be going out on a limb here, but my impression is among when I just sort of hear the chatter on the internet is that it's the favorite album of the thinking these the thinking person's mr g experience album on some level like it's the one and it's got a lot of in kuwait not quite realized hints of things to come in a way composition wise it's an unusual thing and it's got a there's a dark spirit to it that comes out in the sound somehow that was I don't know, you know, sometimes these things happen accidentally. It was recorded under very, not a lot was out of control, both with the, with the recording and with the band and with the label and everything. It, it was not well received at all, but it has kind of hung in there. And many people will tell you it's their favorite one. I like to think that it had something to do with, there was a little more effort put into the compositions, although, you know, like there, a lot of them are very sloppy still. You might be able to tell me whether, you know, some of the melodic elements here, just the fact that like that sounds like it could be from a musical, like it's got that kind of selling, whereas it seems like you're singing more often than not on the earlier, it's a little more punk kind of, I can't make the melodies out as readily. I think that what you're noticing there is probably because that's always been an element in my musicals or Tin Pan Alley songwriting has always been an influence and an ambition, but it's just the execution buried it. (laughs) But the other thing is that I was being more careful about organizing it. In the past, I would have an idea like that, melodic idea, and I would base a whole song around that and that would be a song. And then there would be the other one. And then the dun, 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 that kind of repeats over the, the changing chords. That would be a different song. And then the breakdown where it has the, the, that would be a different song. And this was trying to make one song do all those things at the same time. So one song rather than six songs, but better. And that level of trying to organize things was either beyond my grasp before or was not as I said before, not necessary, not called for because it didn't matter. Or, you know, I just had to have a determination to do it. And it's not like this is the greatest thing in the world, but compared to what I was doing before, it is more deliberate. I realized how lazy I'd been being only when I started trying not to be lazy. I was led astray by the example of other writers as well. You know, I was, I learned to really despise near rhymes, for instance, when I had been told by people that not only were they okay, but they actually helped communicate emotions and everything. But really, they're just, I mean, I'm with Stephen Sondheim on this. They are 
it's just you're not trying hard enough. If it's not hard to write your lyrics, then you're not doing it right. You know, it's it's challenging to me. And if you can sneak in a near rhyme every now and again, and if the rest of the song carries it well enough, then that's fine. But if all your rhymes are like that, it's just like, why are you even pretending like you're composing rhymes? It's like it's a, you know, Elvis Costello was so like my get out of rhyming card. Because it was like, I thought, well, he knows what he's doing. His lyrics don't rhyme, but they should rhyme, really. If he hears this, I'm telling you, man, make your songs rhyme. If you're going to be singing, it's not allowed, you're not around, the way that that is delivered, it's fine. You don't need the exact rhymes there. (laughs) I agree, it's fine. It can be fine, but it's always better if you do it better. It's not allowed because you're plowed. That would not have been better. (laughs) No, well, okay. Maybe if you zoom out far enough, it is better. And this is the thing I'm sort of that I was kind of trying to wrestle with expressing before about how sometimes there's a congruence between compositional ineptitude and the sentiment of confusion and incompetence that you're trying to portray when you're portraying somebody's state of mind. And sometimes they help each other. And then that's the thing where you try to do it. If you try to do it as artifice, then it can be very challenging. But still, those lyrics could be tighter and they have the right idea. But it's part of my history. It's fine. I kind of like wince a little bit at some of the because it would have been very easy to make them really rhyme. And the context, there are different types of songs where it doesn't matter as much that might be an example of one where it doesn't matter as much, but I think it's good that I actually recognized what was going wrong in the ones where there was too much of that. And it's like one of the, I don't know who the guy is. He said, I might've been, I think it was Noel Coward, who, you know, said you can't reinvent the wheel if you don't know what a wheel is and you know, learn what actual rhymes are before you say, oh, I'm going to express myself by getting the rhyme wrong at least do the work to figure it out in the beginning. Just have a rhyming dictionary handy. (laughs) That helps, but it's still hard. Well, that's why I find the near rhymes harder because like I will run through, you know, I need a word to go there. And, you know, you kind of run through the different rhymes almost alphabetically. (laughs) There is not a near rhyming dictionary. (laughs) Maybe that's what, maybe that's what, uh, maybe that's a, a need that could be, that could be filled. But the thing is it adds an extra challenge to you want your lyrics, I want my lyrics to sound as though someone would actually speak them. You know, I don't like when you cram too many syllables, unless you're doing it to be funny, which can be funny. But generally, I don't like when you cram too many syllables into too short space or when you emphasize that I really hate it when you emphasize the wrong syllable to make it fit your prearranged melody that doesn't have anything to do with the real lyrics that you're cramming in. That's the effect it it seems to have to me. But then it's a real challenge to make your cadence and your scanning and everything sound like someone would speak, but also match your melody and rhyme with the words. And then if you zoom out further, have the verses and the bridge and the choruses be repetitive enough so that they are verses and choruses, but also develop to a point where they're going somewhere. I mean, all this stuff, making it sound natural while doing that is a real challenge. It's not ever easy to do. And it may just be that setting yourself up with a task that's so weird and challenging just means that by definition, you're spending a lot of time and effort on it. And then it winds up being better than just the thing is, okay, we got to record this song tomorrow. I already have the music. I got to figure out some lyrics for it, which is the approach of many, many, many writers, including maybe me at some ignominious stages of my recording career. 
it's way better when you put the effort in. And you'll know it when it hits, as opposed to, and you'll know it when it hits. That is exactly the sort of thing. The song is better for my habit, and I did consider that. I thought the internal rhyme was more important than the natural cadence, and that probably does come from my uh, show tunes background a bit. But here's the thing. This is something that has also been my watchword in writing fiction as well. When you make a decision, when you're in a in a situation like that where there's two imperfect ways to go. I'm not, I'm not the best example of an imperfect way to go. I think it's okay. But, you know, just take that as the basis. The plan I follow is there has to be a reason for doing what you're doing. And if it's just because I can't think of anything else to do, that's a bad reason and you should not release it yet. So it's like my reason is the internal rhyme there. If I didn't have a reason, I'd have a lot less of a leg to stand on. And this is with my, you know, a lot of times in in the editorial process of my books, there'll be editors who will complain about, object to various things. You get down into the weeds on the, especially when you're writing books for teenagers, when you're discussing sex, there's a lot of second guessing through the whole process. And one thing that publishers, to my surprise, when I started writing, you know, I just assumed they would go in and censor you. And I just didn't even think about it. I was like, oh, well, if they don't, if this is not cool, I'll get censored. So there's a lot of swearing in it for a book aimed at teens, but it's not like they haven't heard it. I have teens, you know, it's not going to corrupt them. They never do that. It's up to you what you do, but we want you to consider this in the, in one passage of the first book of, of King Dork, there was a word that they said, you know, the way the librarians hate this word and it will possibly cost you lots of sales to libraries uh, if you leave this one word that the librarians hate so much in there. And I found that very amusing. And I thought, okay, well, can we appease the librarians? And my assignment to myself is, can I find a way to replace it that would be funnier? And this is why, I don't know if you remember this scene in the book, but this is why in the geography, the imaginary California geography of um, the Tom Henderson world, that the city Huntsville Vista became Salt Haven because Slut Heaven was funnier. What I'm saying is the moral of the story is if there's a reason for doing it, then at least you've got a something to guide you. If it's just like, God, nothing rhymes. I can't, nothing rhymes with rear or whatever the hell it is that makes it. I'm just going to say dream instead. That's not good enough. You got to put some thought into it is basically, I mean, not telling other people, I'm telling myself, if I were to get too lazy, I would want to do it better if I could. Or you just change the first half. If something's too tough to rhyme with, you just change the thing that you're trying to rhyme with. Or in this case, if you were really agonizing, should it be, and you'll know it when it hits, or you'll know it when it hits, I'd probably just say, you'll know when something hits. Just like, use some other phrasing so you don't have a word in the middle. There's always many ways out, of course. You can do that. Not to defend that line so much as to psych out why it seems okay to me and the more okay to me than other. There's a thing with internal rhymes and a lot of classic songwriting where you hit the rhyme, which is predictable, but then you're not sure where it's going to go after that. And then sometimes it being a little off kilter kind of drives home the, I mean, it can be most Mm -hmm. likely it's a punchline, you know, Irving Berlin style where you're mangling the delivery and that in itself becomes part of the composition. And I think maybe that's something that I absorbed from a lot of those guys. Uh, So lay low, this time permits, and you'll know. And there's a little bit of a thing where, what are you going to know? And when it hits, not funny, but it is a payoff to a degree. That's my rationalization. 
the character of the voice determines a little what you can get away with or what is appropriate to get away with. The fact that even when you're at your most singy, there's still no vibrato on it. It's not talk singy since you're using pitches. It's correct. You know, you're in tune. It sounds good, but it's sort of a different convention than if you're kind of singery singer and sliding all over the place. And, you know, it's just different ways of emphasizing words. Your voice is more like typing, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think you're right. I wish I wish my voice was as good as typing. But yes, one thing Kevin Army taught me is the main thing you have to think about when you're singing and when you're arranging, whether or not you think of it as arranging per se, when you're just coming up with how you're going to play a song to, to record it, getting the song across is the most important thing. And if you don't do that, everything you're doing is just pointless. And for me, I wrestle with not having the greatest singing voice in the world. The way, the only way that's going to work is to not disguise the quirks and to be as straightforward as possible. And a lot of things you can criticize about the stuff I do, but that is the way to get my songs across. People have said before that when they've tried to cover my songs, that it doesn't work for them the way it works for me. And I totally believe it. The weird delivery is definitely part of what, of what gets it across. I've known people like really great singers who've played my songs as like solo pieces in their set and it doesn't really gel, which is a bummer for me. I would like more people to record my songs, but it is what it is. Now I'm picturing a whole like Dylan has his very specific way of delivering, but then you've got a whole body of beautiful singers covering Dylan and how they did that transition. And, you know, if we hadn't heard that in advance, I feel like we couldn't have pictured it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Also, if Dylan had just been in a band, if he had been Pete Townsend and he had a Roger Daltrey singing the songs, would they be as good? You know, probably not. Would Dylan be Dylan if he had a like a technically great singer putting them across his pop songs? On some absolute level, they would still be the same songs. But I don't know if it would have been as easy to iconicize them. I think we have a model of that in Zappa, that Zappa would always get like a good singer but who kind of had the same voice that he did, except just good. Yeah. <laughs> like a more flowing version so that they could sing together. If there was a guy <laughs> like that for me, I'd hire him in a second. So, so our, our thing that we're going to leave the audience with, well, even Hitler had a girlfriend. Another one of your most popular songs is also from the, our bodies ourselves album, 1993. One of the acoustic songs like big, strange, beautiful hammer that was sort of always lurking in that, punk style that like I could just make the rhythm section stop and kind of do what I would be doing anyway and it would be basically the same songwriting style but it would sound like it's just a totally different thing we're just deconstructing it but with this version that we're going to play this is from 2014 by Dr. Frank and the Bye Bye Blackbirds this is how I think I at least was reminded of you because I had Bradley Scott on the show and went through his collection and was a little surprised by this uh you know you've got a very traditional, birdsy, nice, but that you're putting this, I won't say the original was a punk song again. It had the same Tin Pan Alley elements and bubblegum elements or whatever that we've been talking about throughout, that that's kind of been underlying, the underlying melodicism that drives, but it's still you singing against this background. Can you say a little about how that merger came together or, or what you were trying to go for there? The bass player of the Bye Bye Blackbirds was Aaron, who was the bass player of Mr. T Experience at that time. And that's how I know Bradley, and that's how I know those guys. And when the 
genesis of that project was we did a show together where I was playing solo and, you know, Aaron had the idea it would be fun to come up with a few songs that they could be the backup band for. And I chose the two songs, Population Us and Even Hit Without a Girlfriend, because those were both songs that I had had a different arrangement of them in my head when I made them up than I was able to do. I thought there's a second chance at doing them. And even Hitler had a girlfriend was as originally conceived kind of birdsy. So your drummer was too spazzy at the time or what, you know, you're so yeah, we couldn't have pulled it off even if we had tried to do it. But also the drummer particularly was very hostile to the song for some reason. I think it just seemed too hokey or whatever. So this was why I started doing acoustic songs. Because the genesis of doing acoustic songs was, okay, the band won't play it. I'm just going to do it myself. Strangely enough, it's funny to almost impossible to believe even for me, but the reaction to that album, to the degree that there was a reaction was rather hostile. But among the, in our little lookout records world, there was a limited way that you could express hostility to a recording in that context that was based on previous ways of objecting to recordings. And so even though it doesn't quite fit, a lot of the criticism were couched in terms of, oh, there's acoustic songs. This is selling out. It's not electric. It's not punk rock. It's selling out to the mad, ravenous acoustic fans of the world. When I uh, told, this is another weird worlds colliding thing, but one of the things that when you're an author, you end up going to these literary conferences. And some of the ones I've been to have been rather fancy. And there was uh, one in Carmel, where at the banquet, I was seated in between Condoleezza Rice and David Brooks at the table. And they were both very familiar with your oeuvre, I'm sure. Uh, well, they were by the time I sat down to uh, dinner with them. There's one of the other guests at this was Sandra Day O'Connor, who heard me play that song for this auditorium full of kids who were bussed in from the surrounding areas. And we actually bonded over that song and had a long... She was a very interesting, very intelligent and remarkable woman who really loves her scotch. And so I had a flask of scotch. And so we were drinking scotch in the backstage talking about Hitler. And uh, so that was that was a moment to remember. But anyway, the news of my having this song, which was many, many years old at that point, but it's always a I can win over any audience with that song that's been proven time and time again. I played for the most hostile audiences in the world, which are captive high school auditorium audiences and school visits. And it never fails ever, ever, ever. So I played it and people were talking about it. And I was talking to David Brooks about this. And I was telling him the story about our ourselves and the thing I just told you about it there was a hostile reaction to it and he said so it was like Dylan goes electric in reverse which is exactly what it was like that is 100% was like even though instead of the entire world reacting to that it was a core of maybe 64 people who paid attention to my band at that time in the entire world so anyway this is why I chose that song and I thought it would be fun to play it with a full band that knew how to play their instruments well, damn, that's an excellent long introduction. You got to do some super name dropping at the end yeah. just to get us off there. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, no, thank you. This has been fun. All right. Here's Even Hitler Had a Girlfriend, the real version, the always envisioned version. Good. 
Thanks a heck of a lot to Frank. I always like interviewing a smart, reflective fellow. I'm never really sure with a band like the Ramones. Like, are there really clever people behind this? Or is it just stupid and fun? I'm really not sure. But with Frank, even with his early Ramonesy work, despite his descriptions of not putting that much effort into his lyrics and things in his early stages, I think you can still tell there's something going on there. And it's great that he's still doing it. And even better, that he's managed to gain success through a side door such that he can go do book tours on which he brings his guitar and plays his music. Because music itself is just too damn competitive. If you can get a crowd to enjoy your mind in some other way, then maybe they'll be open to listen to your music. At least that's been the theory that I've been going on with podcasting for the last many years. All right, I've continued recording some great interviews. Can't wait for you to hear them all. If you've been impatient for electronic music, Richard Amp is coming up next. And I talked to John Jughead Pearson who's sort of a similar figure to Dr. Frank, and Annie Haslam from Renaissance, Alejandro Escovedo, Richard X. Heyman, and just a couple days ago I talked to Anthony Phillips, the original guitarist before Steve Hackett for Genesis. I've been listening to his music since I was in high school, so I was very excited about that one. Please go subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I'd really appreciate it if you can go on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to this on and give the podcast a nice rating, a review maybe. And I sure could use your support and encouragement to keep doing this podcast. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with me. Let me introduce you to some great songwriters here. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.